heart, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the assurance we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Thus reads this portion of the Word of God from the book of First John. Thanks be indeed to his most holy name. Now, in our series of studies in this great letter of 1 John, across many Sunday evenings, we have arrived at the beginning of what is certainly a postscript to John's letter and his teaching and counsel in the body of that epistle. And you will notice that the postscript to his letter comprises verses 13 through to the end of the chapter in verse 21, where John is really dealing with two concluding subjects as his great letter finally comes to its close. In verses 14 to 17, which we read this evening, he is dealing with the subject of prayer. And you will have noticed from our reading together of these verses that the term pray or ask occurs repeatedly through all of these verses 14 through 17, knitting that section together under a title that we have called this evening Confidence in Prayer. The postscript then goes on in verses 18, 19, and 20 to deal with three final and glorious affirmations that only the Christian can make. Affirmations that are introduced, you notice, by the words, we know, we know, we know. And God willing, we will be looking at these three great final affirmations next Lord's Day evening and thereafter summarizing the whole of this great letter of First John in one or two concluding expositions that will deal with the overall themes. Now this is, God willing, what we plan to do. But the subject before us tonight is, as I said, the matter of prayer and particularly the matter of confidence in prayer. Now you'll notice that the section flows very naturally from the preceding verse, verse 13, which I invite you to look at for a moment. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, in that verse, the whole purpose of John's letter and epistle is to provide the Christian with clear assurance that he is a child of God. 
And as we saw in our last exposition, that assurance was not based upon anything in ourselves, our own feelings, or our own experience, or where we feel we've progressed to in the Christian life, but rather it was an assurance that is based upon God's own testimony that we studied, you remember, in verses 6 through 12 that God has sent his Son into the world, the one who came by water and by the Spirit. Now, in view of verse 13 and its emphasis upon confidence, it naturally leads the aged apostle to look at the way in which that confidence is expressed in Christians. If I am confident, in other words, that I am a true child of God, This, says John, should give me a confident access into the presence of my great heavenly Father who has reconciled me to himself. In other words, the confidence that I am a child of God should lead automatically and naturally to confidence in prayer before the Lord, to full assurance of faith in prayer. Now, this is what is before us this evening, and let me say before we look at what John says that there are few subjects more puzzling to the Christian than the exercise of prayer. Now, I know that on the surface it seems very natural and very easy, but as a child of God I should be able to speak freely to my Father in heaven. But there is that relationship by grace between the Father above and the child below. But in practice, beloved, in practice, Christians often find themselves confused about the subject of prayer. For instance, what is prayer? Does prayer really change things? Or does it merely change the attitude of the person who is praying? How should we pray as Christians? For what things should we pray as Christians? Can we be sure that God always hears us as his children? Can we be confident that God will always answer us as his children? These and a host of other questions gather and cluster around the subject of prayer. And the beauty of these verses from John's final postscript is that he deals with a number of the answers to these very questions that we so frequently ask as believing men and women. In this postscript of his, he is not dealing with redundant matters, but dealing with something that is vital and central in our Christian life and experience. Now I suggest to you that there is a twofold division in what John is bringing to our attention. In verses 14 through 15, he deals with confidence in prayer. And in verses 16 through 17, he deals with concern for others. In other, in other words, how we are to exercise confidence in prayer. Now the beautiful thing about this division of these verses is that each of these contains a promise and each of them contains a qualification. 
and we want to look at these in a moment in turn. Now, first of all, you notice that in verses 14 and 15, he is bringing to our attention the glorious truth that if I am a child of God, born from above by his grace and entering into relationship with him by grace, then I should know experience of assurance in approaching God. Look at what he says. This is the assurance we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and so forth. Now, this is a very beautiful truth, I suggest to you, for us to examine together and to grasp this evening. Verse 14 contains the word assurance, the Greek word parousia, and it is translated already in this letter, you may recall, confidence rather than assurance in three other places, and you may want to turn to those places with me. In chapter 2, verse 28, is the first occurrence of the actual word that is translated assurance here in the passage before us. And we read there in chapter 2, verse 28, uh, that uh, the apostle says, Dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Now, in a similar way, if you turn to chapter 4, verse 17, John uses the word again, where he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Now, in both of these instances, you notice that John is speaking of confidence or assurance before God in view of the day of final judgment. And he is saying to Christians that because of their standing in grace, they may not fear and need not fear that day of awful appearing in the presence of God, but they have confidence in that day when God, the judge of all, will arraign all human flesh before him. But in chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, you find that confidence is used in a different way. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And in this third uh, verse, or two verses, John is using the word in reference to prayer, just as he does here in verse 14 of the passage before us. So it's interesting that twice John uses it of appearing before God at the judgment day, and twice he uses it of appearing before God in prayer, the very same word. And the beautiful truth is this, beloved, that if I am a child of God, when I open my mouth and heart in prayer before him, I need not fear that for some unknown reason he will refuse to hear the one who prays. The confidence that I should have in prayer is of the same genre and character as the confidence in which I will appear 
before the judgment seat of God himself. Now let's look at this as John takes us further into the subject of confidence in prayer. You notice, as I said to you, that there is a promise in verses 14 and 15. Look at these verses and take out for a moment the qualification that is there in the verse. If we ask according to his will, take that out and see what you have. This is the assurance we have in approaching God, but if we ask anything, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now there is the promise. And I want to suggest to you, it is a very wonderful and all-embracing promise indeed. Now, as you look at the two verses, you might say, well, it's obvious, God hears us. That's the first point. And the second point is, God answers us when he hears us. But the verse is really saying more than that. Otherwise, it would be a tautology. It would be repeating itself. Because in the Bible, when the Bible says that God hears us, it usually implies that he is already answering us, and he is going to answer us. So what John is saying is something beyond this, something beyond a tautology. He's introducing a new idea here. And he is saying that because God hears us and therefore answers us, we already have the answer now. And that is the promise. Do you notice the present tense at the end of verse 15? We know that we have what we asked of him. Not the future tense, we will have what we have asked of him, but we have it now already, even as we pray. Now that's what John is teaching us, beloved. This kind of confidence that we have before the Lord when we approach his throne in prayer is such a confidence that we may know, even as we are praying, that God has already given us the answer to our prayers. Now, where did John arrive at such overwhelming confidence as this? Well, I think very clearly from the teaching of Jesus, such as in John 14, verse 13, where Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Or in John 15, verse 7, the words of Jesus again, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Now John, you see, has fully understood our Lord's teaching on prayer, and he has brought to us this new and bold teaching of his own in line with Jesus' thought precisely. He has remembered the words of Jesus, his Master, as the basis of his confidence here. And the promise for you and me tonight is so rich and real. My dear friend, let me ask you, is this your view of prayer? 
Or are you still coming as a Christian with some hesitancy and uncertainty as you pray, wondering whether God hears you and if he hears you, whether or when he will answer you? And what John is teaching us, beloved, is not that we have confidence in prayer, but we have confidence in the God who answers prayer. And we have that confidence in such a way that we may know that he is answering us even as we pray. You see, I've so often heard Christians speak of prayer as though it is some magic formula that we wave around in the sky and then God listens to us. We need to pray about this, it's so often said. And in saying that, there is a danger that we lose sight of the object of prayer. My confidence is not in prayer. My confidence is in the God who answers prayer, but is offered, as we'll see in a moment, in the name of Jesus and according to the will of God. And my assurance as I pray as a believer, I trust, is in God's hearing and therefore in our having. And this is what the aged apostle is intent to bring to us. Are you a child of God? Then not only do you have assurance that you are such, but God has given you, as it were, a new mouth by which you may speak with confidence and assurance to him in prayer in the knowledge that whatever you ask, he will hear provided, as we'll see in a moment, that the qualification is fulfilled. Now this is the second thing, not only the promise, but the qualification that we took out, you remember, in our reading of those two verses. Let's put it back in again. If we ask anything according to his will. The middle of verse 14. Now how much we need that. You see, our Lord's teaching and John's teaching is not that we have a sort of carte blanche in front of us on which we write just anything we want, the most foolish and sinful things included. Not at all. The qualification is that our praying must not be according to our sinful wishes and our sinful desires, but according to what an all-wise and all-holy and all-righteous God desires for his people and desires for his church. We saw that when we read in chapter 3 of this same letter, verses 21 and 22, that we will be heard, says John, when we pray, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And even in those passages that I quoted to you from John 14 and 15, you may remember that the qualification that our Lord added in that great expansive promise concerning his people's praying and God's answering them was that they must pray in my name, but they must abide or remain in me. And his words, Jesus' words, must remain or abide in them. Now, what is John teaching us? What is our Lord teaching us? That prayer is not some magic formula or mechanism to change God's will and enlarge it to include the items that we desire. 
but rather it is getting our requests in line with the perfect and all-wise will of God for us. Now, you see, what John is telling us, I believe, is this, and it's something that I came across just recently in reading the second volume of the great biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray. There is a section in that biography that is very illuminating. There are many sections, but one in which uh, I was personally greatly blessed as I read of Martin Lloyd-Jones's teaching on prayer and his practice of it. He said, you know, the hardest thing that we have to do in prayer is not to pray. It is in that exercise of prayer to bring ourselves into line with God's will for us. And that is what John is teaching and emphasizing here. But if we are to have confidence in prayer and know the answer to our prayers then we must be in that position where our lives have been so brought into line with what God desires for us and his will for us. But our prayer is the natural outflow of a life that is being lived out like that. In other words, God has been so dealing with us. His word is remaining or abiding in us. We are asking according to the name of Jesus in the sense that our whole life has been a learning process to think God's thoughts after him, to desire his desires. So that you see, when I come to the place of prayer and bow my knee in the sacred presence of God and begin to intercede, the whole course of my life has been tending toward the desire. May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done in my whole life. So that when I pray, it is the outflow of a life like that. Now that's where prayer is so hard you see. And what I read about is confirmed in my own experience. It's very easy to mouth words. Very easy. But it is very difficult to speak those words that have the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon them that arise from a life that is more and more conformed to the will of God, praying according to his will is not so much a requirement for prayer as for our whole life that is behind the prayer that we are offering. Let me ask you this evening, is your life's aim and ambition nothing other than the holy will of God? Are you living with a relationship before God like that? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you praying in his name. Because you see, this is the mark of the healthy spiritual life that when it comes into the presence of God in prayer has that confidence as an heirloom of the child of God because the whole of your life is being progressively brought into to line with his will for you. That's what we should be seeking for not my will, but thine, O Lord, be done. The promise and the qualification that together usher us in 
to this blessed experience of confidence in prayer. Now there's a second thing, and it is concern about others in verses 16 through 17. Now as we've seen so often, the apostle is so very practical in dealing with every subject that he touches upon, and he is no less practical in dealing with this subject of prayer because having shown us the nature of prayer, he now deals with the subject for prayer. And he moves from the confidence that we should have in prayer to what we should pray for. Now when you think of this, it is an area of real difficulty very often in the Christian life, and we're often very perplexed. What should we pray for? And how should we pray for that thing? And very often our answer, if we're truthful, is that we put many personal things on those lists of prayers that we bring before the living Lord. We ask for food and for family, safety and things like this. And why I mention this is that these kind of personal requests, while not wrong, are not where John begins his instruction as to how we should pray. Do you notice John's answer in verses 16 and 17? Begins not with ourselves, but with others. And his real and specific example of praying confidently in prayer is interceding for the needs of others. If anyone sees a brother commit a sin, but does not lead to death, he should pray, says John, and God will give life to that brother. In other words, confident prayer, initially at least, does not lead to a preoccupation with our own needs, so that heaven's resources focus upon me. Now, how often have you heard that kind of praying, what I call the breadbasket kind of praying. There is a place for it. But it is a mark of maturity to me when I hear someone interceding and praying with earnestness and fervency for others so that heaven's resources focus upon the need of the brotherhood and the fellowship before ever they come and focus upon my needs. And so John leads us, you see, to think out in this direction with, again, the twofold division of the promise and the qualification. Well, look at the promise at the beginning of verse 16. He should pray, says Sir John, for such a brother who is erring, who is in some kind of sin or disobedience, and God will give him life. Now, it's a wonderful promise again, isn't it? Just like the first one that gives us confidence in the presence of God. But what is the situation here? Well, clearly, while the Christian is to pursue righteousness at every level of his life, and this is, as we've seen, an evidence of being a true Christian, nevertheless, at times, we all fail. We become entangled with sin. We are allured away from the Word of God and the Church of God and the fellowship of God and the will of God for our lives. We are enticed. And of course we should confess that sin 
and return to Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who is the propitiation for all our sins, as we have seen. But very often, when I am caught as a believer in some sin, the last thing that I want to do is to do the thing I need to do, to repent, to humble my heart, to come back into the ways of the Lord again. Now the question is, am I to be left to myself in that condition to suffer the consequences of my disobedience? And John's answer is no. Those who are spiritual are to pray for such a brother. Just as Paul counsels us in Galatians 6, in some ways a parallel passage to the one we are considering this evening, that if there is a brother caught in some sin, you who are spiritual should do what? Restore him with humbleness, lest you also be tempted. And the promise is that if we who are Christians and spiritually minded pray for such a one, God will hear and respond. He will give him life, not physical life, but spiritual life, by bringing him back into fellowship with God again. Now, isn't this a challenge? Do we look at prayer in that way and the confidence that we should have in prayer in that way? So often, I think we find that Christians fail here. Someone has gone out of the way, and what do we do? We gossip. We spread rumors, perhaps. Thankfully not, I believe, to a great extent in this congregation, but I've seen it done. We talk to one another instead of talking to God. And we should pray for that person because God alone can give him life in the sense of restoring him again to the ways and paths of grace. And you notice that John does not use the imperative but he uses the future indicative. He should pray for that person. In other words, he takes it for granted that the spiritually minded man will not need a specific command to pray for the erring brother. He will do it, and God will restore him with the gift of spiritual life again. What a wonderful ministry in the midst of the church. Brothers, are you, sisters, are you using this ministry? to encourage one another, as indeed we should, in the Lord. But then there's the qualification in verse 16 and 17, the end of verse 16 and into 17. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. Well, what is this sin that uh, does not lead to death and the sin that does lead to death? Well, I think it's fairly clear, and we cannot be absolutely certain, because clearly this was a key Johannine expression, that is one used frequently by the Apostle John, and those who listened to him in the first century obviously knew what he meant. We are left to decide from Scripture generally what is a probable interpretation, particularly of the sin that does lead to death. But I think the situation he is envisaging is this. But the sin that does not lead to death is a sin that a Christian may commit, a Christian brother. He has gone out of the way. He needs to be restored again. This is not a fatal condition. It is an unfortunate condition, a damaging condition, but one from which the brother may be restored. 
But the qualification is that there is a sin that does lead to death, and we are not to pray for the brother who is caught in that kind of situation. This man, this woman, is not to be prayed for. What then is that sin that leads to death? Well, almost certainly, the death is not physical death, nor spiritual death, but it is the final and eternal death, the ultimate condemnation before God. And what John would seem to be envisaging here is what Jesus met with in the course of his ministry, and this is the closest answer we can find, I believe, such as in Matthew 12, verse 31, where Jesus warned that every sin may be forgiven except the sin that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So John, I believe, is teaching us here. But there may be those who appear to be brothers. Remember, he has used the term brother at the beginning of this section may appear to be brothers, and even in the fellowship, but they are acting in such a way that it becomes increasingly clear to those true believers in the fellowship that they have not a Christian in their midst, but an anti-Christian, an anti-Christ. Here is a person who is persistently rejecting the light and the truth of the gospel, resisting the apostolic authority, rejecting the message of the word, setting himself implacably against it, and so showing that indeed he is not in Christ, but an anti-Christ, utterly hard and scornful of all good, but the gospel would bring to him. For such a case, says John, I believe, we are not scripturally bound nor required to pray for such a person caught in that implacable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Now that's the best interpretation that I can give to you. But let's not lose, as we finish tonight, the positive emphasis upon this whole section the central issue, beloved, is this, that God is able to free those entangled in the coils of sin. And oh, we should see our ministry more and more as one of praying to that gracious Lord, the King and Head of the Church, who alone can change the heart, who alone can break the iron-clad will that has set itself against God in the Christian and so soften it and make it yielding and malleable again, that those whose sin is not unto death may be recovered and restored to the fellowship again. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Confidence in prayer. Do you possess it? Do you feel the urgency of John's appeal to focus your prayers upon others that the church of God may be deeply blessed? May this indeed be the lesson that we find from this passage. We need no encouragement not to pray. But dear friends, we need every scriptural encouragement to pray in this way and John's teaching so lovingly provides it for us. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we're thankful this evening that John has taken us into the richness, even in a few verses, of a ministry of prayer. Enable us, our Father, to follow his counsel, to the enrichment of the church and the strengthening of believers in Christ. For thy name's sake, amen.